what a wonderful privilege it is for us to be able to call the God of creation our Father. And in whatever issues or trials or difficulties that we have, to know that He cares for us as a loving Father cares for a newborn baby. He is the one who upholds us, encourages us. He is the one who gives us strength. Even if in the days that pass we feel like strangers, even if we feel like pilgrims tossed to and fro, wandering about, wondering what are the purposes in God. Peter's first letter was written to such people, strangers, scattered, pilgrims in a place but not their home, all the people looking for hope. Turn with me to Peter's first letter, the first epistle to Peter, or from Peter. This morning we come to yet another section in this book where Peter breaks forth declaring, proclaiming, and getting excited about the Christian's position and who the Christian is. And it's fascinating because if we look here in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 11, there is a transition as he begins and transitions personally to the people he's writing to. And he says to them, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation that is way of life, manner of life, honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. These two verses are a transition in this book from Peter declaring by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit who these people are and what their position is to then get really personal and really practical in how they live their lives. But even this transitional, these two transitional verses uh, begin to get personal, cannot be isolated from the context that comes before. That is verses 9 and 10, where Peter declares this, but ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, an holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. And then he goes on in practical living. 
Do you see what he's just described there in verses 9 and 10? But it really didn't start here. This is kind of the conclusion to an entire section that Peter has been describing who Christians are. Look back with me to chapter 1. As soon as he addresses the believers, in verse 2, he refers to them as elect, that is, chosen people. An elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. He then goes on in verse 4 to speak of an inheritance that we have. After telling us that we have a lively hope that is in Christ Jesus and in his resurrection. And speaks of us being kept by the power of God and wherein we can rejoice, regardless of what trials and temptations we may face as we look to Jesus, as we look to his appearing, knowing that we have the salvation of our bodies, knowing that there is a resurrection, knowing that there is hope in that, and this is so exciting. Paul says that the prophets of old desired to look into it and did look into it and searched it out, and not only the prophets of old, but even angels desire to look into this hope that we have. That's how exciting it is. He transitions in chapter 1, verse 13, to encourage us to gird up the loins of our minds to think, to prepare our minds to think, as he then goes on and tells us that we are a holy people, and we're called to be holy. We're called to be set apart because we've been redeemed, because we've been purchased with the precious blood of Christ. And this purchasing is resulted in us not only being redeemed, but a description he then goes on to describe as those who are born again. And this theme continues both from the beginning all the way through the book of a people who are born again and are guaranteed promises based upon the unchanging, unending, eternally enduring Word of God. Then in that, considering we're born again, we are as newborn babes to desire the sincere milk of the Word. We then are tasting and seeing that the Lord is gracious. He then compares us and describes us as lively stones, lively stones that are joined together, that are built up into a spiritual house with Christ being our chief cornerstone. In this analogy, he describes these builders who rejected Christ, who rejected him as the chief cornerstone. They were disobedient. Rather, he's described us in verse 2 of chapter 1 as those who are obedient, obeying the gospel is what's being described here. But there are those who are disobedient, and Christ, who was rejected of the builders, now become the head of the corner, is a stumbling block. And in comparing Scripture, Scriptures we did last week, we saw that it's a big judgment for those upon, who, who, who stumble upon Christ and upon whom the judgment of God falls. And after describing warning of this judgment that is appointed in verse 8 of chapter 2 upon the disobedient, he says, but ye. 
He transitions here in describing this judgment that will come upon those who are disobedient and stumble over Christ rather than receive Him and come nigh unto Him. They're appointed unto judgment. And it's not a pretty judgment as we observed last week. Jesus described it as upon whomsoever the stone falleth shall be ground to powder. It's a very horrific description and picture there. But ye, he changes, and he seeks to encourage the believers, the Christians, the ones who are not disobedient, but rather are obedient. And he begins to describe them with these terms. Now, we read these, and perhaps you're familiar with them, and perhaps you're not, but I'd like to take some time this morning to consider some of these terms that Peter is describing us as believers. And I wonder if when you get up tomorrow morning and you brush your teeth, if you look into the mirror and say to yourself, you are a chosen generation. Now, you might say that would be weird. Well, it might be weird, but it would be a good thing to do. When was the last time you told yourself you're a chosen generation? When was the last time you told yourself that you're a holy priesthood. You are a king priest. Have you ever told yourself that? Uh, when was the last time that you looked and said that uh, to yourself or, or thought, I am a holy nation? Or how about this one? This one you might describe yourself. I am a peculiar people. You know what? I think it would be good for us to do these things because what is going on here is, is that the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Peter is saying just those things to us. This morning, if you are a Christian, you are these things. You are a chosen generation. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, and you are a peculiar people. And it's describing us as a body individually, together, we are precious and a part of these things. So what do they mean? And, and why is it given here? And, and, and then why is it right here before he goes on to say, dearly beloved, I beseech you? See, He's going to take what's, des what's described in all, really all of chapter 1 and 2 previously, but particularly in verses 9 and 10, as the basis upon which the practical applications to come are built. Ye are a chosen generation. You might read that, and the first conclusion you might come to is, ah, these people there in AD 65, scattered throughout Asia Minor, they were a chosen generation. They were special. It's not about me, a generation, you know. We talk about that being every, you know, 30 years and generations go by. Well, the use of generation here isn't that kind of generation. It's not speaking of, the, of a particular time in history, and it's not speaking of the um, descendants. It's connected, but it's, it's a little bit unique. It's tied back in with verse 23 of chapter 1. 
Look across the page there. Chapter, 20, chapter 1, verse 23, we are described as being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. Back in chapter 1, verse 3, there's the blessing of God, this benediction where it says, Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What's being described here in the phrase chosen generation is describing what you become when you're born again. You become a child of God, a chosen child of God. You join in to the generation, get this, to the generation of Jesus Christ. You are united with him. You become his sibling, so to speak, and you become him. That's the generation aspect described here. And the emphasis is not so much on the generation, but is on the statement that you have been chosen. You are chosen. You know what that means? You're special. You're special. You are a chosen generation. You are joint heirs with Christ. You are a child of God. You are, you, 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 you are no longer a child of darkness. You are no longer a child of the devil. You are no longer a child of this world. And regardless of whether or not you're Chinese or Indian or, well, can we have an ethnicity of American? No, I don't think we can. So we, whatever race, quote-unquote, or ethnicity you might be, this is new. You are a part of God's family, chosen to be part of it. So indeed, tomorrow morning or whenever, look into the mirror and say, you, I, we are a chosen generation. We are joint heirs with Christ. And that's not it. He goes on and he says, but ye are a royal priesthood. And this one's fascinating. In the Old Testament, in the background and foundation for many of these things is the nation of Israel. And the priesthood in the Old Testament was very distinct and separate from the king royal house. In fact, the kings who tried to do priest jobs, it didn't go well for them. God judged them when kings took upon themselves the role of a priest. But as it's describing here for us, because we have been born again, because we have been born into the family of God, the generation of Jesus Christ, we identify with him, we are united with him, and guess what? He's royalty. When you're born again, you become royalty. Isn't that exciting? How many of you ever wanted to, think, wanted to find out whether or not you had royal blood in you? 
Well, you don't have to worry about that. Of all the earthly royal bloods and of all the earthly kingdoms, they don't compare to the one who is royal here. This is the eternal king. Royalty. Royalty. And when you and I are united with Christ, we become royalty and not just royalty. We become priests. Now this, again, we talked a little bit about last week, and it carries, it carries several different nuances. One being is that we are those who serve God. Another aspect of a priest is one who offers sacrifices. And another aspect of a priest is one who intercedes on behalf of others. So when we are born again into the family of God, we are chosen, of a chosen generation. We become royalty, and we also become priests. We become priests who serve God. We serve God. We serve Him by praise. In fact, the sacrifices that we offer are ourselves as a living sacrifice, our bodies, our passions, our lives, and also our praise. And then in that, we also become one where we have direct access to God through Christ Jesus, the one whom we've united with. We have direct access to God. There's no other mediator or go-between that is required. For when we are become this chosen generation and this royal priesthood, we are as united with Christ, have direct access to God. And so when we have a petition or something that we need to bring before our Father, our God, we need not go find some priest somewhere. For as united in Christ, we have instant access to the throne of grace, God's throne, where we can lay out our petitions and bring forth our praise. We are a royal priesthood. And then it says we are a holy nation. This is very closely tied to the chosen generation. The word translated their nation, you might recognize the Greek word because we actually use it in English. The Greek word is ethnos. How do we use it in English? Ethnicity. Ethnicity. So here it says that we are a holy ethnicity. And you may think, wait, wait, wait a minute. How's that? What? Well, this is a spiritual ethnicity. And it's fascinating because when we think of ethnicity, when we think of race, when we think of a generation, we think of it as something that cannot be changed. You're born this way and you stay this way and it's period the way it is. But what's being described here, both in that aspect of the chosen generation, as well as here this holy nation, this holy people, this holy ethnos, is a conversion of who we are as people. Yes, we do continue as human beings. And yes, if I'm Irish and um, I stay Irish, but yet my ethnicity as an Irishman is nothing special. My wife's Chinese. And the Chinese is insignificant compared because now we together 
and all of us together, whether we sit here in South Bend, Indiana, or we are of an African ethnicity or of a Chinese ethnicity or of an Indian ethnicity, of no matter where and what our human ethnicity may be, when we are united with Christ, we are set apart as a holy people. Indeed, really, we're all the ethnicities that make us quote-unquote different don't matter. What you see here is an inference to what's taught in other places and passages. It says there is no Jew or Greek. It doesn't mean that the Greek stops being a Greek and the Jew stops being a Jew. It matters. It means that now they are the people of God. And those ethnicities are set apart. They're set apart as people of God. It's a spiritual, you might say, ethnicity. A spiritual, a holy nation. Now, often when we think of a nation, and some have tried to make this out of this, and it's not an accurate way of doing it, where we set up this idea of a government, and you know, you have the rulers and so forth, and some have thought, well, here's an illustration of a defense of how the church ought to be a nation in the sense of having rules and laws and punish evildoers. That's not the point of what's described here. The point of it, what's being described here, is that we are a people that regardless of our nationality or ethnicity, are one in Christ. That is holy. You keep finding the word holy in this book? It keeps popping up, doesn't it? Sanctified and holy. It means being set apart to God. We are a people, we're a nation who are set apart to God. That means that when he goes on in verse 11 and the rest of the chapter and the rest of the book, talking about how we ought to live and who we ought to be as a people, he's recognizing the fact that we're holy and we're called to be holy. Isn't it fascinating that we've seen here this chosen generation, this holy nation, and we'll talk about the next one, this peculiar people in a moment, but see how it's tied in with verse 11 description? It doesn't change the fact. In fact, it actually makes verse 11 more vivid. Because we are all of the things in verse 9, when we interact in this world, we interact now as strangers and pilgrims. Do you see it? The world, the system of this world is not who we're a part of any longer. We are holy. We are separate from it. It doesn't mean that we have zero interaction with it, for we do have interaction with it. In fact, we have a commission, a great commission, to engage this world. But we're not a part of it. And we're separate from it. In, in this world system, we are strangers and pilgrims. That's, it, it's, it's a reality that as we live our lives, there ought to be this sense of longing, this sense of longing to be done with this old world, a sense of longing for heaven. What's being described here is for us to recognize these realities in the midst of being a stranger and a pilgrim. And if it's not exciting enough to know that you are a chosen generation and a royal priesthood and a holy nation, you're also a peculiar people. Now, 
Peculiar is not the same as weird. We're not a weird people. We are a peculiar people, which is fascinating. Do you recognize or do you hear another word in the English word peculiar? Do you, do you hear another word in there? I love to take English words and find root words and see where they come from and, and how they piece together to form new words. Peculiar. Think of the word particular. Now, sometimes when we think about peculiar, we immediately, at least I do in my background, um, think of something weird, something strange. But that's not the point here. The point here is, in being peculiar, you are particular. What's that mean? Well, what that means is it's tied in together with all of these other pieces of being chosen. You are one who has been chosen. You are one who has been made holy, been set apart to God, and one whom he has given particular care, treasure, priority to. It's as if he wraps his arms around you as his own. You are peculiar in the sense that you and I are the particular treasure of God himself. That's what it means. We are different to him in a particular and, and special way. Yes, it does carry the idea of being different, but not different in weird or strange, but different as in being a child of God who is his treasure, the treasure of God. It's used in the Greek, and the, which Paul originally, or Peter originally wrote in, of taking something and setting it aside and drawing a circle around it. That's special. That's my treasure. Don't touch it. You don't cross that line. That's the treasureness of this particular, peculiar. We are such a people. Now, if you could take for a moment and lift yourselves up out of our culture and our time in history and fly back to AD 65 when this was written and place yourself in Asia Minor where Christianity has been declared by the Roman Empire as illegal and you are hunted and you are persecuted, and your goods are stolen and confiscated. You have no home, and you are running for your life truly and physically and literally a stranger and a pilgrim. Do you see the hope that would come here now as being one who is described as a peculiar person, the particular treasure of God? Wow. What glory that would be. What does it result in? Well, he declares these things. And he tells us what the result of these things will be in our lives. Ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. That, there's a purpose for all of this. That, ye 
all of us, should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. When you get up tomorrow morning, or really, before you leave here today, accept the reality that as a Christian, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a chosen generation, you are a royal priesthood, you are a holy nation, you are a peculiar people. And recognize that that will result in one who is showing forth the praises of God. And here, there are three different specifics in which we praise. The first is, is that we have been translated from darkness to light. The second is, is that we've come from being a nobody to being a somebody. And the last one is, is that we come from those who had no mercy to being those who have received mercy. And you see, when we have these things, and we recognize the significance of these three things as people who are described in verse 9, chosen generation, royal priesthood, holy nation, and peculiar people, people are going to notice. And you know it's going to change our frame of reference. It's going to change our perspective on life. He doesn't deny the fact that they're pilgrims and strangers. He doesn't deny the fact that they're basically refugees. In fact, I think he anticipated an objection. Put yourself again in those churches in Asia Minor in AD 65. Perhaps you're huddling in some cellar somewhere because you're being hunted. And this letter shows up and somebody starts to read it. You see how our adversary, the devil, would come along and say to you, do you really think you're a chosen generation? <laughs> royalty? Yeah, royalty doesn't hide out in cellars. A priesthood? You really think you got access to God? You, you're, you're a nobody. You're a nobody. You're a nobody. But are you? See, the Holy Spirit through Peter is telling these saints and us too that we are a somebody because of Jesus Christ. And we are united with him. And so we are a somebody. And we are a special treasure. No matter how much of a refugee, stranger, oppressed person we may feel ourselves to be, these things are true. I think that's why Peter says, oh, dearly beloved, oh, dearly beloved, I know you're strangers and pilgrims, but being a stranger and being a pilgrim doesn't change the reality of what I've just told you. You're special. And because you're special, in the midst of your hiding in that cellar or in running for your life or in dealing with your persecutors or those who don't know quite what to make of Christians. Are you showing forth his praises? 
are you showing forth the incredible greatness of your God and all the excellencies, the wonderful things for which he is worthy of praise? Are you showing it forth? Are you putting it on display by what you say and by what you do? That's what will happen. We, considering that we are born again and now chosen generation, royal priesthood, holy nation, and a peculiar people, we are the people going forth with praise, showing forth God's greatness. And some of the things that we show forth is the fact and recognize that we once were in darkness, lost and stumbling about. But when we came to Jesus, the light of the world, we are no longer walking darkness. We no longer are darkness, but we are light. And notice, it is his marvelous light that is Jesus Christ. Verse 10, he recognizes in time past, and we, and as we go and show forth to the world around us, we recognize that indeed in time past, we were not a people. I mean, we, we're, we're people. We're human beings. We're made in the image of God. We're special in that sake, in that way. But we weren't a part of any chosen generation. We, we weren't a peculiar people. We weren't a holy nation. We were nobody. But in Christ, oh, we are now the people of God. Now imagine you've got people messing with you. They're not messing with you. They're messing with God now because you're his. You once didn't have mercy. And this is an interesting, if we look at it in its historical context as well as in the modern context for ourselves, is that we all deserve condemnation. We all stand as condemned sinners, not worthy of mercy. But yet, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died for our sins so that we could be justified, that is, a guilty sinner declared righteous, so that we could receive not condemnation, but mercy. We all need mercy. Here is the mercy of God. And this is calling out to these people who in this case, combination of all the significance of this phrase, of those who had not had mercy but now have obtained mercy, is significant in, in not just salvation, but is in significance to the day-by-day -day experiences of mercy because we are this chosen generation, this holy nation, this peculiar people, we have obtained mercy. The daily mercies. Yes, the great mercies in dealing with our state of sin, but in every day, no matter what we face as the strangers and pilgrims, we have obtained mercy. And it's not just that we have it. It's something that we show forth as one of the excellent, great, majestic praises of our God. So this morning, if you've been born again, though you may 
be strangers and pilgrims. You're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. This will change how we live. This gives us hope. This gives us encouragement. This ought to lift us up from any kind of discouragement or temptation thrown to us by our adversary, the devil, or by our own weak flesh. And it should make a difference. And some of the difference, Peter continues on in the rest of this book to describe. And it's fascinating. And we're going to get to those things. But this morning, let me begin in anticipation of that by encouraging you. Look up. So when you look in the mirror tomorrow, don't look in the mirror at yourself. Look past the mirror. Look past yourself. Look to Jesus, the one within with whom you are united. You are one with and recognize these realities in you and go forth in the day showing forth the praises of your God. It will make a difference in how we live, in how we handle temptation, in how we handle frustrations, in how we handle those little things that provoke us, prick us. Temptations to fear. Refocus upon these realities we have because of who our God is. This morning, perhaps none of these are true for you. Because if you have not received the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have not believed upon him, then you are disobedient to the gospel. Disobedient to the gospel. The gospel is simply the declaration that Christ Jesus died for our sins, was buried and rose again, and that whosoever calleth upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whoever believes on him, Jesus, trusting in him, shall be saved receives forgiveness of sin, receives everlasting life, receives the Holy Spirit, is born again, and becomes all of these things. So this morning, if you have not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and received him, do that today. All the hope and discouragements, I mean, to put it candidly, uh, all human beings are, in a sense, strangers and pilgrims in this world. God's original and ideal plan for this world was not the chaos that we see. It's the sin curse. And that's the reason why we all are looking for fulfillment in different places. But I'll tell you, all the fulfillment we may seek and look to find will be empty if it's put in anything or in anyone other than the Lord Jesus Christ, our God and our Savior. So this morning, whether you've already trusted in him and received him 
or you have not yet, do just that. Hope, trust in him. Lord Jesus, we give thanks to you this day for your gift of salvation. We give thanks today for your gospel, the good news that we can have hope through Jesus. Lord, you know the different trials. You know the different burdens of each one here represented this morning. I pray that you would use the truth of your word here to shine forth into each heart that we might recognize who we are as a people before you. May it encourage us and then motivate us to live our lives pleasing to you in your strength and for your glory and honor. We commit ourselves to you and we give thanks. And may we go forth, showing forth your praises to all those around us. We give ourselves to you now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.